We will be in Joshua chapter two. It's my understanding that Blake introed uh, Joshua um, as a series last Sunday. I listened to his sermon and it was so strong as he called us back to repentance and confession and faith in Christ and I think I heard he made it a point in the sermon for any of those that are here today who may have been here last week who've never responded to the gospel. He set the table very clearly and compellingly to make Christ desirable. So I hope that the Lord's Spirit is at work drawing you to him, whether you've been with him for many years, many decades, to be drawn to him again and afresh is a treasure and maybe you are here just kicking the tires of Christianity. Maybe you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ. You haven't pushed all the chips into the middle and let it ride on the resurrection. Well, I hope that the Lord's Spirit will be at work again this morning drawing you to himself. We'll be in Joshua 2 and though this sermon really does encapsulate the whole chapter, um, I'm just going to read the first portion and I'm going to trust that it's some lull, some boring point in the sermon. You're going to dig in and read the rest of it. I've read more of scripture because of boring sermons um, than maybe anything else. And that's good. That's a mercy from the Lord that he gives us this when he's, the guy up here is not giving it to you as clearly. So there you go. You can work your way through that. This is the word of the Lord. Would you stand as we read it together? These are the first 14 verses of the gospel of Jesus as it's given to us from Joshua 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, mm, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, 
swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may sit. Let me pray for us as you take your seat. Father, we trust that this is your word. And we know that the word of the Lord is living and active and it is sharp. Many of us come with wounded hearts and probably just as many of us come with hardened hearts. And wherever we are at on that spectrum, because you are our gracious Father and risen King, we ask that you take your word and pierce us this morning, that you would lay us open before you, that in all of our woundedness and brokenness and sinfulness, your spirit would be active and at work, binding us up and making us whole. And as you open us up and find flinty hearts, oh, Father, Oh, by the power of Christ and the presence of your creative spirit, would you you do heart surgery and open up those flinty hearts and remove them and give us hearts of Christ's flesh that beat and pulse with grace? Would you allow us the mercy of having your word and your spirit come alive in us again and give us eyes to see and ears to hear the face and voice of our Savior calling to us to come into his fields of richness and fullness and eat our fill. Do this, do this for us, our Father, for your church and make us as beautiful now as you have declared us to be for all eternity. And Christ is our only hope and prayer that we have these things already in him. Make it so now, amen. In America's finest hour, when we were nearly at the end of our rope and the red commies were taking over with their tremendous propaganda and fear campaigns, two of our absolute best artists came together for the 1985 classic, Spies Like Us. Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd play a couple of accidental and incompetent civilian employees of the CIA who in a moment of trickeration get put into the field of the Cold War in Pakistan as American agents. And the beauty of the story is that they do almost nothing correctly and yet they keep succeeding in spite of themselves and their comedic ability to bumble and screw up any circumstance. The joy that many of you have if you're in my age group and you have teens and preteens is you get to introduce them to golden nuggets of treasure like spies like us. And so I married an ax murderer and Goonies. You get to show them what good art is. Doctor, 
doctor, doctor, doctor. This is beauty. This is wonderful comedic timing, and it's at work in this movie. And I love a good heist movie, and I love a good spy thriller. These are my two favorite genres, both in book and in film. I think there's something admirable and heroic about the trained secret keeper who can sneak in and out of any situation in various cultures all over the world. And though I've never been to spy school myself yet, I know the first rule of spy club. The first rule of spy club is never talk about spy club. No, the first rule is always blend in. Always blend in. If you're a spy, you wanna dress like the people you're trying to infiltrate. You wanna talk like them. You wanna share their culture. This is the first rule of spy club. Maybe you didn't know that. But I will put a dollar to a donut that you know the second rule of spy club. The second rule of spy club, and feel free to be presbycostal now, you can say it back to me, is don't get caught, right? Maybe there is a CIA agent here, but odds are if you are, you have a different job, so don't feel like you have to raise your hand. But there's no spies here, and yet we all know the two key things, right? Blend in and for the love of everything. Don't get caught. Don't get caught. Spies, if nothing else, are meant to be sneaky and elusive. And that's why when we come to Joshua 2, the comedic effect of getting spotted and nearly caught two verses in shouldn't go unnoticed. These spies had one job. Guys, you have one job. Can you just sneak in and spy it out? And the second verse in, it's not that the guy on the street noticed him whispering in Hebrew to one another and thought, holy cow, those are Hebrews. I should tell someone. Two verses in, the king knows. The king has mastered the plan. So I don't know what these two Hebrews' day job was, but I can promise you they would have benefited from a little training in clandestine activity. And this chapter, many chapters in scripture you come across and you think, okay, yes, it's the word of the Lord, but even if it wasn't, it's still fun. It's still entertaining. Like even if Christ wasn't at work and this wasn't the word of God in written form for us, we could read this and go, that was kind of fun to watch it play itself out in the first place. But as exciting and as moving as this little account is, it has a deeper and even more enthralling backdrop, much of which Blake covered last week in his lead up to Joshua, and I didn't know that before I prepared my sermon, and I listened to his sermon after mine was written, and so let me remind you of what Blake may have told you last week. When we think of God's saving acts, for his Hebrew people, his chosen people, the amazing tales of Exodus jump into the forefront of our mind, that God acted in overwhelming strength to set his people free from the most fearful superpower of the day. And his people waltzed across the sea on dry land, as we heard both in this passage and in the Hebrews 11 passage that Maggie read for us. 
They waltzed across the sea, and then their oppressors, their enslavers who were coming after them, okay, we wanna renegotiate the plans of your release. We would like to have you come back and make a few more bricks for us, and then we'll let you go after next fiscal quarter. They're coming to get them again, and the ocean, by God's mercy and judgment, collapses in on them. They were saved from oppression and slavery because of the dramatic events that unfolded with a burning bush and numerous plagues, pillars of cloud and fire, and the sea opening up and closing again to let them across and drown their enemies. And so when we think back of Israel's salvation story, we think of exodus and freedom, and if we're not diligent, we'll stop there. We'll stop with the sea closing up behind them and say, Way to go, God. Good job. Now they're saved. Oh, we're going to do this again. Blake reminded you of this background last week, but maybe you, like me, suffer from short-term salvation memory loss. So let me remind you again of, of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Along with God's promise to Abraham that he, Abraham, will be the father of a great nation, he tells him in Genesis 12, verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. Yes, they had been saved from the Egyptians, but on the other side of the same coin of salvation, they had been saved to something, to a land of promise where they were meant to flourish, to thrive, to dwell in peace and security and fruitfulness. They were meant to thrive there. And maybe you've also forgotten that the spies in Joshua 2 are not the first set of Hebrew spies to sneak in and figure out what lies ahead. In Numbers 13, Moses sends spies into the promised land. How many spies does he send? It's a trick question. One from every tribe of Israel, plus one. He sends a baker's dozen in. He sends Joshua along with all the others that go. And one of the others that go is Caleb. And they go into the land to spy it out. They snoop around for 40 days. And these spies were actually good at their spy craft. They were super sneaky. They went everywhere. They saw everything. They shoplifted snacks from the local mini-mart along the way, and all this without being caught. The problem comes in was that they saw the beauty of the land, and they also saw the long shadow that the big, strong, meaty men in their big, strong, fortified cities cast, and this shadow fell across the land and it covered the eyes of the spies except for Caleb and Joshua. They came back and they say, if you want to turn with me to Numbers 13, 31 and 33. Caleb acquitted the people before Moses, this is 30, and he said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men, the other 10, or 11, 
11, 12, whatever. I'm not a math magician. So there was 13 minus 2. We'll call it 11 for now. The other men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. What had God done to bring them there? Drown a nation, freak out a king, blow over a couple other kings. God had done all this stuff, and here they see these guys, and they say, mm-mm, mm-mm, no, 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 no. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, and they said, the land through which we have gone to spy out, mm, it's like western Oklahoma. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people in Gaiman that saw it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So fear is the shadow that overcasts them, and they lied about the goodness and the richness of the land. So the people in 14 numbers, they weep and wail all that night, and they complain against their Presbyterian session, Moses and Aaron, their elders in their church, and they say, oh, you guys are terrible pastors. Oh, I wish we would have just died in Egypt. At least there we had leeks and onions, and we had something to do, but oh, God hates us, so he's going to kill us out here in the desert. Oh, this is so bad. It's terrible. And God says, oh, okay. You, you want to not go into the land? Okay, I'll grant that prayer of yours. Here's 40 years of hiking in the wasteland. They're sentenced to wander in the wastes for 40 years until everyone who saw with their eyes the amazing acts to free them from Egypt died off, except for Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph and Caleb. Everyone on the original team dies. And so when we pick back up in Joshua 2, well, Joshua 1, the 40 years of judgment wandering have passed, and they're again back at the River Jordan. And again, spies are selected and sent in. And the question from numbers remains, will the covenant continue or is this where God finally abandons his people? Is this where he says, this far and no more? This is where I'm done with you people. Can the covenant continue? Will it come to completion? Will we not be saved just from, but will we finally be saved to Or are we going to die as homeless former slaves? The Lord has given them the land. Will this bumbling, stumbling gaggle of souls finally walk into it? The story of Rahab and the spies as it comes to us is really as clear as day. There's not a whole lot going on in the background that I need to explain to you. The spies walk into the city with a big flashing neon arrow above their heads and a siren that screams, hey, anybody looking for Hebrew spies trying to take over your land, here we are. And they go like many outside visitors. They go to the first place where a lot of weary travelers go, to the local bordello, where the innkeeper, the 
Head madam hides them, stashes them away under stacks of flax, a grain-like grass that she and everyone else in the area that had a roof would pile up, that the sun would dry them out, that they could then beat the flax grain out and grind up to make bread or cakes. That was their main source of sustenance. So she had piles of this stuff up on her roof and every day she would go up and rake it and set it up so that what was on the bottom would come to the top and dry out. So this is normal. And then the king's men come and say, we want these guys. So she lies about their presence and sends their pursuers on a wild goose chase. But something happens in between. The the chapter is out of order. When we read verse seven, the action is on the tail end. They've gone out. But from eight to 14, the centerpiece of that action-packed adventure gets expanded. We fill in the question marks. It's like one of the Oceans 11, 12, or 13 movies. Maybe some of you saw those. Children, you probably can't yet, but one day your parents will introduce you to that. But those movies have a knack where they show you the good bad guys ending up with the money from the bad bad guy before they tell you how everything went in the middle. That's one of their tricks that they do, uh, one of the foils that they make use of to keep it uh, compelling, to keep it enthralling to the watcher. Only after the climax are you shown the stuff that happened behind the scenes, and that's what happens in verses 8 through 14. Before the king's men come to her house to investigate, she sat them down and confessed her fear of the Lord And you'll notice in your Bible and in your worship guide, the letters that spell out Lord are all capitalized. And maybe you don't know this, so let me explain it to you. When you come across in the Old Testament, the the name of God, Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, that's God's covenant name, the name Yahweh that he reveals to Moses at the burning bush. It comes from the root word, Hayah, in scripture, which means is. And it's God saying, I am. My name is I am. I'm, I am. I'm always current. I'm always here. I'm not I was. It's not the God who used to be active. It's not I will be the God who might come and save us in the future. It's I am always present, always here, always working, always powerful, always saving. I am. And there's no reason for a Gentile to know God's covenant name, and she claims it. Not the more generic term for God, Elohim, not the name of her God, but where she might mean the God of the Hebrews. She says, no, no, your God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of heaven above and on earth below. And she even professes the fulfillment of his promise to save them by giving them the land. We know that the Lord has given you this land. You don't know it yet. You people aren't convinced yet. But we know it. We in the land know that God has given you this land. 
And she tells them that the kings and men of the whole countryside no longer have the spirit to fight because they've heard all the reports that their God fights for his people. And so she begs them for the Lord's kindness and mercy to spare her life and her family's lives, the household of her father, her mother and brothers and sisters. And the spies realize what a gift she's offered this foreigner one. I think, again, you have to do some exegetical work here. You have to put yourself in the mind of a Hebrew. What do the average Hebrew person think about the average Gentile person, the person that's not a Hebrew? Positive or negative? Negative, bad. And then also in that same Hebrew mind, how do they tend to view females? Lower than males. So now you have a Gentile female, and they're not huge fans of prostitution, never mind what the Hebrew history says about Judah and Tamar or about David and Bathsheba. The law says no prostitution is bad. We're not going to do that because our God's name is holy and we're his people living into his name. So you have a Gentile female prostitute who's offering them grace. Now, the Pharisees hear women like this and how do they respond? with murderous rage. But the spies hear this offer of grace and they realize that the lowest of the low in the Hebrew mindset has become their hero. She's going to save them. And I don't mean this in a theological sense, I mean it in a very physical, practical sense. Rahab is their savior in this circumstance. She's placing her life on the line, risking her neck for theirs. And in return, the spies promise her their own lives to protect her household when they do come into the land. Our life for yours, even to death. And so they strike a deal and she snuggles them up in flax and lies about their whereabouts. And then later in the passage that maybe you've read by now, she lets them down her window by a rope and they give her a sign and a seal of the grace that awaits her. Here's a scarlet cord, tie it around your window. And when we come and take the land, we're not gonna touch your house in the wall. And it's fascinating, in your worship guide, there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon at the beginning, the contemplative component of the service, where he says, he reminds us as the Israelites, the soon-to-be Israelites, the Hebrews come in, how does God give them Jericho? They march around the wall every day, and then the seventh day, march around seven times, and then they blow their trumpets, and what happens to the walls of Jericho? Anybody go to VBS one day? The walls come tumbling down. Now, where is Rahab's wall or house? In the wall. So you have to picture the walls falling down and there's one citadel standing of Rahab's house. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful imagery of grace sustaining and persevering and protecting grace. 
And this is one of those stories in the Bible that we love because it's action-packed and drama-filled. But don't get lost in the details. The simple truth that we're meant to grasp and take with us is that a female Gentile hooker is shining with faithfulness. The outside is the one who demonstrates faith in God's unfolding story. The outsider is the one who says, I have faith that God will provide for his people. She puts her life on the line to join God's salvation history, his unfolding story of always rescuing. She wants to be rescued. The most undeserving outsider, the the most marginalized and unclean finds favor in God's sight because of chesed, chesed, the Hebrew word that our translators chose to represent with kindness, as I have shown kindness to you. Now you show me the kindness, chesed, of your God. It's the word most often used to describe God's covenant-keeping love. And so when we read kindness, sometimes it doesn't carry enough weight for us. This is what chesed, God's covenant-keeping love, means. It is his never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever type of love. God's kindness to his people is his never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever type of love. This is the overwhelming strength of Yahweh's kind and generous love that Rahab holds out in his name and longs, is desperate for to participate in, as I have dealt in this dangerous covenant-keeping love with you, will you offer the same dangerous covenant-keeping love to me? That's the central heartbeat of the story. And if we expand our horizons, that's the central theme of Scripture. God's covenant love, overwhelming, sneaking in, finding places to roost, finding hearts to break, finding people to save. That's the story of this book. From beginning to end, God has been about finding the stranger and the alien, the far off ones, the undeserving and unexpected ones. And he doesn't just find them and say, aha, I got you, Adam and Eve. You knew you were naked because you did wrong. He finds them and he calls them. He works to make them his beautiful and beloved children. God's act is always from and to. Don't stop with one or you rob the glory. And then he works in and through those children that he saved to shine his light to the nations by making them loving, joyous, peaceful, patient, kind to all, moral, faithful unto death, gentle like lambs, self-aware and spirit-controlled. God's always saving us from and to and then by his spirit making us fruitful with the spirit's fruit as he sends us out to shine. 
so that the story repeats itself ad infinitum. So that as we go out shining with the radiance of Yahweh in chesed, grace is penetrating, grace is finding a dark place to shine, grace is finding a broken heart to rest on, that through us, God is shining his light into others and saving them from and to and putting his spirit in them to work so that they might do the same. And there's a reason why we're all gathered here today. It's because God has always worked that story out for his glorious namesake and for our gain in his good news. God is always at work bringing the marginalized into his kingdom to send them back out to bring in more, which is exactly what we see in this account as God's grace goes through spies to a harlot, to her family, all the way down the line until Jesus. When Matthew opens up his gospel account of the lineage of Jesus, the coming king. He mentions five women. Tamar, who played the part of a prostitute to gain God's covenant promises from Judah, her father-in-law, who was seeking to withhold from her the saving to component. And then he mentions Ruth. Ruth is also a foreigner who, though she doesn't go as far as Tamar engages in some sneaky agricultural business to become a part of God's unfolding story with Boaz. And then we have Ruth, whose story we know, also a foreigner. And then we have Bathsheba, whom Matthew doesn't even name, but says, and gave birth to Solomon by David. No, and David gave birth to Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even mention Bathsheba, but she's there because the great king had her husband murdered. And Matthew also mentions Mary, a young woman who was nearly divorced before her wedding. Why? Because God is always at work bringing covenant-keeping love, never-failing love to life, and he does it in strange hearts. And so Rahab has this place of honor in the gene pool of Jesus, but she also gets the gold jacket of entry into the hall of fame of faithfulness in Hebrews 11, which we read earlier in the service. She's a hero and a model of what it means to look like and live like her saving God. And in her dangerous act of faith, she left a shining example for us to follow. The book of James, Jesus' half-brother, he says that very thing, James chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. This will make you nervous if you're committed to the Reformed faith but it shouldn't, it should make you balanced. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James, <laughs> dang it, 
Martin Luther called James a right strawy epistle, as if it was made of straw and it wouldn't hold up. Luther needed some balance too. He was a bit... You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Here he's going to put some salve on this wound for us. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Rahab faithfully works out of the faith that she personally and truly professes. She believes in this covenant life-giving God so much that she's willing to put her life on the line. You know where else Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament? In all the hungry faces and in all the desperation of the sinful, needy ones who flocked to Christ in the Gospels. We see Rahab's story in the story of the invalid whose friends peeled back the roof to drop him down at the Savior's feet. We see Rahab's story in the foreign woman at the well. We see Rahab's story with the Canaanite woman who has a demon-possessed son. We see Rahab's story in the woman with the blood flow, the hemorrhage for many, many years who had undergone shameful procedure after wallet-emptying procedure to where she has nothing left except to sneak up and pickpocket some grace from the Savior. Rahab's story, whether her name is only mentioned three times in the New Testament, her story echoes like a gong again and again in need, in desperation, in hopelessness. People will do whatever they have to to find and grasp Jesus. Her heart is on full display in every blind beggar and every sickness healed by the never stopping, the never giving up, the unbreakable, the always and forever type of love that Jesus, the Son of God, came to flaunt. Grace, God's grace and kindness flows downhill and it swallows up every sinner at the end of her rope who cries out to be made a child of this covenant-keeping and generous God. So this is the story of Rahab, which leads to the story of Jesus, which leads to the story of the church, and it lands right in the laps of spies like us. Ultimately, if you can be brutally honest with yourself, you're no different from Rahab. Not ultimately, not really. I'm no different. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says of the church that we're not wise, we're not powerful, we're not of noble birth. Instead of being those things, here's the ones that God chose to let grace come home to, to the foolish, to the weak, to the low, to the despised, to the things that are not. All by God's perfect engineering that he might make his grace shine by the work of King Jesus. 
He's taken us from the pit, from the valley of death and destruction, and set us up on high as children of the King, that we might boast only in the Lord and in the strength of his love and chesed to sinners, his kindness to sinners. Isn't it fascinating that the nickname they gave Jesus was the friend of sinners? Oh, be careful, brother and sister. When you think of yourself no longer as a sinner, do you need a friend in Jesus? Jesus came to be and remains a friend of sinners. And if you grow so far in your gospel development, you're so holy, you don't need Jesus as a friend of sinners. Oh, may he break your heart. May he shatter you. May he pierce you and wound you so that you know your desperate need like Rahab. So if we take Rahab's story with the spies and Jesus' story with the gospel and pull it into ourselves as the church, what are we left with? We're left with a mission from Joshua, our Joshua. See, Joshua is the Hebrew name, and if we translated Joshua into Greek, what would we be left with? Jesus. Jesus' name, his mom called him Joshua. We have a mission from Joshua to sneak into the land and spy out where strong grace might land in weak places next. Do you remember, church, the Great Commission? How does the Great Commission start? No, it doesn't start, go, but thank you for trying. No one else spoke out and you did, and I hate to break your heart. The Great Commission starts with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, now say it, go. It starts with authority, not with the command go, but with the definitive declaration that this is all mine. There's not a land, not a culture, not a people, not even a dialect that Jesus is willing to leave unclaimed. This whole planet, is now the theater of God's to wage holy war against injustice, against sin, against brokenness and ruin. And he's doing it through our going and our suffering and our embodying the same chesed. We go because of his authority in his never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever type of love that Jesus has written into our hearts by his spirit. And I wish I could be a spy. Oftentimes throughout the week, I'm gonna hang up ministry and go into spycraft. I don't tell anybody, so I still have a job. But I fancy myself with a couple years training as Jason born, but I know what you know about me and about you, that we are far more like Mr. Bean than we are Jason Bourne. There are no James Bonds in the kingdom of God. We are stumbling and bumbling spies, just like Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and the apostles and the early church fathers and every mega church pastor today and Blake Altman and everyone else in the PCA, we are bad spies. 
And here's where grace comes home for us. Aren't you glad that the same strong grace that called you into Christ is the same strong grace that holds you in the hand and heart of Christ? There's gospel for us. It's not that we don't go. It's that even in our going and failing, Christ is before us. Christ is behind us. Christ is in our midst as I am God who is here, who is at work in us to will and to work to his good pleasure. So there's our hope, our gospel in our going, that all we do is simply the best we can in our meager attempts to bless others in Christ. While as we go, we're trusting God to accomplish everything that he's promised in his son. Where we fail and falter, our God never does. Amen. In today's passage, we not only see the ministry of Jesus reflected in Rahab, we hear the mission of Jesus and his repeated promise through the spies to Rahab, where he says to her and to us, my life for yours, even unto death. My life for yours, even unto death. He has brought us out of the slavery of our sin and is walking us into the rich land of himself. We have, brothers and sisters, been set free. And we are, brothers and sisters, being brought to new life in our king. This is the announcement of life that you have been entrusted with. Go, therefore into the whole world and make disciples of everyone, even especially the desperate men and women like Rahab. Go, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, it's a good word that you come to us in our desperation in our house of sinfulness, in the place where nothing good has happened, where all we've had is hunger and need and want. And you've sent us one, one whom we esteemed not. He was not beautiful that we should honor him. And yet he came and claimed this land as his own and has given us the strength of the promise of an echoing tomb outside of Jerusalem. My life for yours. This hope is all that we have in Christ. And so we have tied the scarlet cord of his blood around our hearts by the power of your spirit. We have claimed him as our own because you have claimed us as your children. Oh, Father, leave us not in this place of destitution, but continue to save us and provide for us and work to bring us into your family more and more and strengthen us and give our limbs vigor that you send us out, that our voices are clear and strong as we call into the highways and hedges, new brothers and sisters to life in our Savior. Let your spirit be at work in our hearts. Let your spirit be at work in this church and all your churches across the land so that hearts may melt 
and people surrender to you as their true king. Do this, O oh God, and receive the thanks and praise of your renewed people. Amen.